Today's scripture reading is from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 1. There was a certain man from Ramathium, a Sufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Ikana, son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Suf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Alkina, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband, Elkanah, went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. All right, if we uh, have another joy of meeting, my name is Aaron, and I have the privilege of serving as uh, one of the pastors at Exilic. And uh, if you're joining us for the first time today, uh, we are kicking off a series on 1 Samuel. And I want to explain why we're going through 1 Samuel uh, uh, by uh, putting it this way. Uh, when it comes to our philosophy on preaching, uh, there are two ways that we do it. Sometimes we preach through things topically, like our DNA series or Advent, or we preach through uh, entire books of the Bible, like we did 1 Corinthians in October, and today we're embarking on uh, 1 Samuel. 
one of the advantages of preaching through entire books of the Bible is that we get a better grasp of what the Bible is teaching. So when we do topical things, we're just kind of jumping around all throughout the Bible, like potpourri of different verses. Uh, but when we preach through entire books of the Bible, it gives us a better grasp of what the Bible uh, holistically is trying to say. And so we try to give you a balance uh, in your spiritual diet. So we, we did something from the New Testament in the fall. Uh, with 1 Corinthians. And so today we're going to be doing something uh, from the Old Testament, which is 1 Samuel. So that's a little bit uh, about the philosophy of our, our preaching and why we preach on what we do. Uh, and so today we're going to kick off on 1 Samuel. And if I could give one thesis or a theme for the book of 1 Samuel, it, it comes from 1 Samuel 13, 14. And uh, this kind of phrase is sort of pervasive throughout the book, if we can pull that up. And it says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So what does it mean to be a man or a woman that is after God's own heart? Well, what does it mean to be after anyone's heart? Uh, maybe that, that's a helpful way of looking at it. Uh, when you're chasing after someone's heart, it means that uh, what's important to them is important to you. That what they love, you now love. What they hate, you now hate. You know what that was for me when I was chasing after Hannah? It means now I have to love quinoa, now I have to hate soda if I want to chase after her heart, right? It means that what, what, what matters to them now matters to you. What they're passionate about, you begin to be more open-minded and be passionate about. That's what it means to be after someone's heart. So what does it mean to chase after God's heart? What he loves, you now love. What he hates, you now hate. What he cares about, what is important to him, you now care about. It's now important to you. So that, that's what it means to be chasing after God's heart. Now, I want you to take a step back for a moment because the truth of the matter is we're all pursuing and chasing after something, right? We're pursuing, chasing after success, chasing after money, we're chasing after a guy or a girl. We're chasing after comfort, stability, the American dream. We're all pursuing or chasing after something. And none of those things are bad to chase, by the way. It's not bad to chase after success or, or fame or whatnot. But when those good things become God things, when those good things, not bad things, but those good things become ultimate things, that's when that becomes a bad thing because those things will ultimately not fulfill us or satisfy us the way that we need. There is only one person that can do that, that is God. So I wanna read you something from Rick Rubin, uh, former co-president of Columbia Records. Rubin says, it's hard to get really depressed until your dreams come true. Once your dream comes true and you realize that you feel the same way as you did before, then you really get a feeling of hopelessness because you feel like, okay, I have this empty hole in me, but if I get to do this thing, this is gonna fill that hole. And you know, one in a million get to do that thing, and then you realize, oh, I feel exactly the same. Most worldly things tend not to be that satisfying. Now, I don't, I don't know Rick Rubin's you know, uh, religious affiliations or whatnot, but if you come to Exilic long enough, these kinds of like stories, it's almost like a broken record. Like we've heard this narrative before, haven't we? 
So why are we saying it again? We're saying it again because the seductive nature of chasing after these things is so strong. And so we have to constantly remind ourselves of the empty calories of chasing these things other than God because they are not going to fill you or satisfy you the way that you really need. There is only one person that is big enough to fill the Grand Canyon that is inside here, and that is God himself. And so to illustrate this point even more, I want to share the story of Hannah. We just finished a series for Advent called The Mothers of Jesus, where we took a look at four women in Jesus' family tree. Uh, But the truth of the matter is the Bible is filled with many remarkable women that deserve our attention. And I don't know if you've heard a sermon on Hannah before, but she is one of the most resilient and relatable figures in the Bible. So I wanna, I wanna uh, talk about her story a little bit more. And, and one of the reasons why I feel like Hannah is so relatable, you know, albeit an ancient figure, so relata- relatable to us is because Hannah too felt like she had a Grand Canyon in her heart. There was a seismic hole inside of here. And a part of the reason why Hannah felt like there was a hole in her heart is because she also felt like there was a hole in her womb. She had fertility issues. Now, uh, when I talk about this topic, this topic can be very triggering, and I realize that. Uh, As I think about even people in my own family that I've gone through uh, some difficulties with this, um, some dear friends uh, that have gone through some traumatic experiences with this, and, and even people in our own community that have uh, battled miscarriages and fertility issues. Uh, these types of things are very much real, not only to the narratives back then, but our narratives today. Okay? But the reason why I'm mentioning this topic is because it's impossible to share the story of Hannah without talking about this aspect of her life. So I want you to, for a moment, I want you to place yourself in the shoes of a Middle Eastern woman who is unable to have kids embedded in a familial culture. Uh, We live in a highly individualistic culture. After we ask, you know, what's your name, we say, what do you do, right? And what school did you go to? And so based upon your response, this is how we size one another up, right? Because we live in an individualistic culture. In a familial culture, after they ask you what's your name, they would ask you, whose son or daughter are you? Oh, I'm David, the son of Jesse, the son of so-and-so. They would say, are you married? Do you have kids? This is, this is what it's like to live in a familial culture, right? So that, that's what the emphasis was on. And based upon you know, marriage and kids, that's how you derived a sense of identity, status, worth. And, and marriage and the kids was not only a way of, of deriving a sense of identity, status, and worth, But kids in particular defined your future. There were no 401ks back then. There's no retirement benefits. You know who they were? You know who your 401k were? It's your kids. The moment they grow up and they start working, they're going to provide for for us. And so this is how important having kids were to the infrastructure and destiny of your own life. And this is the culture that Hannah lived in. So I want you to place yourself Uh, in the shoes of Hannah for a moment, uh, who's having fertility issues. And back then, keep in mind, there were no fertility tests for men or for women. And so whenever you couldn't have kids, guess who got the blame? Was it the husband? No, it was always the wife. 
So I want you to place your shoes, uh, place yourself in the shoes of Hannah for a moment who lived a thousand years before Jesus, who's having fertility issues, embedded in a familial culture, and because of these issues, she's emotionally distressed. And because she feels that emotional distress, it leads to a loss of joy, that leads to a loss of appetite. Okay, I don't know if you've ever experienced uh, such emotional distress before that you can't even eat. It stinks. This is what Hannah is feeling though right now. She can't even eat. And so there's two things that I wanna look at as we take a look at the story of Hannah. I wanna take a look at her pain but I also want to take a look at her prayer. Most of our uh, time will be spent on her pain, but I do want to look at her prayer at the very end as well. So take a look with me at verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramathayim, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. So there's two things that I want us to see just from this verse that we tend to sort of blitz over whenever reading. The first is this, you see the phrase, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, like from a literary perspective, what we, what we can see from, from this verse is that Hannah does live in a familial culture, right? They, they don't list their occupations, they're listing their genealogy. So again, Hannah lives thoroughly in a familial culture. The second thing that I want us to see is that we're introduced to Hannah's husband, whose name is Elkanah. And if you read verse two, it says this, he had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. So here's what we know. Hannah was unable to have kids. And because Hannah was unable to have kids, this is likely the reason why Elkanah felt the need to get a second wife, Penina, and to have kids with her. Uh, for those of you who are history nerds, if you even look at like the Code of Hammurabi or the laws of Hammurabi, there were secular laws in this culture that even encouraged men to get a second, third, or fourth wife if your first, second, or third wife were unable to have kids. And even if they were able to have kids, you could still get more wives so that you could have more kids. So this, this is how, you know, central getting married and having kids were uh, to the life of uh, the Middle Eastern world. So again, I want you to place yourself in the shoes of Hannah for a moment. You feel shame. She probably felt a little bit of insecurity because she's unable to produce children, right? But she not only experiences shame and insecurity about that as a woman, but now she experiences a little bit of anger, jealousy, because her husband is sleeping with another woman under the same roof. So she experiences shame and an insecurity and she also experiences jealousy and anger. And, and in addition to all of that, there is another layer of emotional trauma that is added to Hannah's life. Take a look with me at verses six to seven. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. So 
Now we're introduced to the second wife whose name is Panina, and chances are Panina felt a little bit of insecurity and shame because she was not the first wife, but she was the second wife. And because Panina now is battling insecurity and shame about being number two, how does she deal with her insecurity? She makes the number one wife, Hannah, she makes her feel insecure about her fertility issues, right? And, and how does she do this? We don't know, but let's just use our imagination for a moment. Now here Panina is having kids left and right. She's baby showers, baby sprinkles, baby tinkles, whatever the fourth one is called, just throwing all these you know, and, and just saying things like little things like, Hannah, I can't wait till you have kids. There's nothing better than being a mom. You know, and, and she's just talking about the joys over and over and over right in front of Hannah's face. And I think there's a couple of things that we can learn just from this, this dynamic that was happening here. And if I can, if I can speak to you, all the moms and dads in the house and, and those of you who are watching online as well, Moms and dads, if there is one idol that not even the church will touch, you know what that is? It's our kids. Not even the church will touch this idol. This, this idol is hands off. We don't talk about the kids. But this is something that we often do. And what is an idol? An idol is whenever something becomes the center of your life where you are consumed with that thing. Even when we're not with our kids, we're still talking about our kids all the time. And this is something that we battle with. And so there has to be a layer of sensitivity that we have as moms and dads. There are places to talk about it. There are places not to talk about it too. Generally speaking, this applies to all of us, by the way, right? So if you're a married couple, you know, first, first amongst your peers to get married, most of your friends are not. They're still singles. You know, a lot of single people, they want to be where you are, okay? And so when you're constantly just talking about marriage all the time in front of them or saying things like, oh, you're such a great guy, you're such a great girl, like, why aren't you dating yet? You know, like, how is, this, how is a single person supposed to feel when they hear things like that? Like, what are you, picky? Like, when, when, when we say things like that, it doesn't help address the ins- We're all in fragile places, right? I'm increasingly getting fragile about, about my age, right? When, when my wife points out my white hair, and that's why I make all these stupid jokes about how young I am, because I'm getting more fragile about my age. Like, there are all different, whatever season of life you're in, as you get older, whatever age, whatever stage you might be in, there are always layers of fragility and precariousness that we are all in. And what that means is that we have to be more mindful and aware of the people that we are surrounded by uh, because of that fragility that, uh, that we experience. Hannah obviously is in a very fragile uh, place in her life right now because she can't eat. She's weeping, right, day and night. And this is how her uh, emotionally sensitive husband, Elkanah, responds. Verse 8. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Instead of saying to Hannah, Hannah, don't you know that you are worth more than 10 sons? (laughs) He says, don't you know that I am worth more than 10 sons? Instead of saying, Hannah, we don't need to have children 
because we are ultimately children of God and that's all that matters. This is where we derive our sense of identity. He doesn't say that. Instead of saying, Hannah, remember when I married you and we made these vows, these audacious vows like in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, and I know that you're in sorrow right now, in plenty and in want, whether we have plenty of kids or we want kids but can't have kids, I'm with you. I'm not going to get a second wife. I made these vows and promises to you. Regardless of whatever happens, I'm with you. That's what he should have said. But instead, he turns the tables and he says, aren't I worth more to you than 10 sons? Instead of making Hannah's grief about Hannah, Elkanah makes everything about him. Friends, whenever you experience any kind of conflict or issues that are going on in your life with another person, whenever there's some kind of conflict and you see that the other person is in more emotional distress than you, they're a little bit more grieved than you are, despite the fact that you have all these you know, rights and you know, you're logically thinking of defenses that you can make for yourself. Whenever you see another person that is in more grief than you are, you have to make it about them. You can't just make it about yourself. The absence of compassion almost always leads to the presence of victim narratives. Elkanah did not have compassion for his wife. And as a result, he turns himself into a victim. Aren't I worth more to you than 10 sons? He doesn't make it about Hannah. He makes it about himself. Now, generally speaking, Elkanah does not represent every husband in the world. He does not. But he does represent a lot of us who are unable to see the emotional needs of our wives. I would say generally speaking, again, generally speaking, as men, we are good at working on our bodies, CrossFit, hitting the gym, like lifting weights, all that. We're good at working on our bodies. Uh, we're good at working on our minds. You know, so many of you have multiple degrees, you're book smart, you're business savvy. You know, like when I, when I listen to guys in our church talk about like mining for crypto, you know what I think about? Like, what is that? Is it, is it like, do you get a shovel and like dig in Central Park? Is that like what mining for crypto is? Like, what does that even mean? Like, I don't know what that means, right? But so many of you do. You're good at working out your minds. You're good at working out your souls. You're, you're here at church. You're, you pray, you read the word, you serve our community uh, relentlessly. But if there's one thing that, generally speaking, that we kind of stink at, it's working out our emotions and processing them. You know, one of the reasons why Elkanah was unable to see uh, the emotions of his wife Hannah, one of the reasons why uh, her emotions were unintelligible to him is because for Elkanah, his own emotions were unintelligible to him. Now, this is a hypothesis, and I don't know for certain, but I am willing to bet Elkanah was a kind of dude that did not talk about his emotions. Kept things in-house, bottled up everything, don't want to air out the dirty laundry. What, what are people going to think? Like, we're, we're, we're like, I'm messed up. Like, our marriage is dysfunctional. Like, like, I don't want people to think all that. Like, and he was the kind of dude just kept everything in-house because what are people going to think? What am I going to think about myself? 
And yet when you take a look at the Bible, the Proverbs in particular, what does it say over and over again? It says to surround ourselves with a wiser company of counselors. Now that could be licensed counselors, but it's not just licensed counselors. It's to surround ourselves with a wiser company of friends, church community, pastors, spiritual leaders, advisors, mentors, whatever. But it says over and over again to surround ourselves uh, with a wiser company of people to help us. So this is the value of counseling, right? They can help process your unprocessed thoughts. They can help make intelligible your unintelligible thoughts because we're strangers to ourselves. And I'm willing to bet, although I don't know for certain, this situation, this dynamic with Panina and everything going on, it's going on for years. Dude never got help. Never got help for himself, his wife, the situation that was happening. Dude never reached out to anyone. Now, it is better late than never to seek help. But the longer you wait, the more damage can be done. More damage is done, the longer it's going to take to untangle a lot of the stuff uh, that's taking place. Hannah experiences insecurity and shame. She experiences anger and resentment about her husband for cheating on her. She experiences trauma from Panina, the second wife. She experiences insensitivity from her husband. Don't I, don't I mean worth, you know, am I not worth more than 10 sons? But now let's add another layer to that, okay? Verse 9 to 14. Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the, doorpo- uh, by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Now, if it wasn't enough that Hannah is getting hit from Penina, the second wife, she's getting hit from her husband. Now she is getting hit from Eli. You know who Eli was? He was a high priest of Israel. You know who he was? He was her pastor, her spiritual advisor. If there was one person in Hannah's life who should have been more compassionate to her and more sensitive to her, you would think it would be the person that was quote unquote closest to God. And yet he thinks he's drunk on gin and tonic and he's telling her to put away her wine. Meanwhile, what she's really doing is praying and releasing her anguish and her pain to God. That's what she's really doing. Now, just, just a, a few thoughts on this. Uh, I want you to know that our staff, we are not perfect by any means. But I do want you to know that we are here as a resource for you. Over the past two years during this whole pandemic, and I don't think I'm being hyperbolic when I say this, over the past two years, we have done more counseling over the past two years than the previous five years combined. No exaggeration. So I want you to know that we are here as a resource for you if you are going through anything, whatever it might be. The second thing I want you to know is that it's not sustainable for us as a staff to do everything. So I also want you to know that there is a 
a pretty awesome community in our midst. And a lot of people in our community have experienced a lot of different things in life. And so if you reach out to us, because you might be thinking, well, who are they and how do I find them? If you just simply reach out to us and say, hey, I'm specifically looking for this kind of person that went through this, that's this age, this gender. Is there anyone in our community like that? Just reach out to us because we might not be a good fit or a good match, but we will find that person for you. Furthermore, if that person doesn't exist within our own community, we will canvas our entire network. We will canvas the country if we have to, to find a person that can help you with whatever you're going through, and we will not give up, okay? So we want you to know that these resources are available for you uh, so that you are not on an island by yourself to help process the different emotions and struggles and whatever you might be going through uh, in the context of community and the context of a wiser counselor. And the last thing I would say is this. I also want us to be reminded that There is another person that we can talk to. You don't have to pay 150 bucks an hour for them. You don't have to wait three to six months to to get a face-to-face conversation with them. You can talk to them anytime you want. And you know what? Probably the best counselor that you can ever have. And that is none other than God himself. He is always available. 2 a.m., 3 a.m. He is always willing to listen, even if you're a hot mess. And he will always give you the wise counsel that you need. So take a look with me at verse 10. So this is what Hannah does, because she doesn't know where else to turn. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Oftentimes, prayer is not the first place that we go to but it's usually the last place that we go to. It's not the first thing that we do, it's the last thing that we do. But for Hannah, she brought her tears and her fears, insecurity and shame to God. Hannah knew that prayer not only changes things, but it could change her as well. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, Philippians 4, 6 to 7, if you've grown up in the church, this is like, you know, this is a verse that is probably plastered somewhere, you know, on, on your wall or something like that. And it says this, uh, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, uh, especially if you've grown up in the church, this, these two verses are so familiar to you, it, it means almost nothing to you anymore. But I want you to look at this from a new light. And I think it was Dane Ortland who, who first uh, pointed this out. This verse says, don't be anxious about anything. And by the way, we live in probably, you know, what a lot of sociolo- sociologists refer to as the age of anxiety, right? Age of loneliness, age of, age of anxiety. So we all have anxiety, right? What does it say? Don't be anxious about anything, but by prayer and petition, present your request to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart. So what this verse is saying is this, if you're anxious, if you want anxiety uprooted from your heart, uprooted from your mind that's causing you insomnia and all that, if you want it uprooted from your life, pray. And when you pray, prayer, God, will uproot that anxiety and plant peace in your life. Prayer can help remove that anxiety. So 
Here's, what, here's another way of looking at it. The opposite of prayer then is not prayerlessness. The opposite of prayer is anxiety. You're anxious because you're not praying because prayer can remove anxiety. If you're still highly, highly anxious, you need to go before the throne over and over again because that can help remove the, the anxiety that you're feeling and it can plant peace uh, in your life. I promise you, when we, when we all get to heaven, there are probably two things that we're gonna think of immediately. Number one, this place is freaking awesome. So much better than this. Number two, when we see how big God is, the second thought we're gonna have is, why didn't I talk to you more? If I only knew, if I only had a grander vision of how big you are, of what kind of resource I had, what kind of loving father is available to me, surely, surely I would have talked to you more if I only knew. And so today I want us to give, I want us to have a grander vision of the kind of God is and the resource that we have in him. Craig Rochelle, uh, for those of you who, who love all things leadership-oriented, I don't, I don't agree with everything theologically, he might say, but in terms of his leadership, his podcast is, is excellent. And one of the things that he says is successful people do consistently what other people do occasionally. The fastest way to do big things is to consistently do small, right things. And one of the things that you can consistently do that's small and right is to simply pray. I'm not asking for an hour. It could just be a couple minutes. But doing these consistent small things can lead to big results in your life. There's a pastor that I tremendously respect here in the city. And one of the things that he said is, if I could do ministry over again, one of the things that I would do is to pray more. When we get to heaven, we're not going to think I pray too much. I promise you the one thought we're gonna have is I pray too little. So a wise person, and I know that all of you are wise here, a wise, logical, rational person would say, then I probably need to pray and seek his face more. Because prayer not only changes things, but it changes us. Hannah knew that. So if you're going through stuff, pray. Okay, you know that. We all know this. But prayer not only changes us, it does change things as well. So if you take a look at 19 and 20, we'll close with this. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Prayer not only changes us, but it can change things as well. Now this theme of uh, you know, fertility issues is pervasive throughout the Bible. Um, Sarah, Rachel, Manoah, who was Samson's mom, uh, Elizabeth, it's, it's pervasive throughout the Bible. And whenever these women do give birth to a son eventually, what ends up happening is that, that son kind of saves the people somehow, some way, somehow, right? And although Mary was not, uh, uh, was not childless, at one point she was. And eventually she does give birth to a son whose name is Jesus. And he would come to save the entire world. Now I am, again, this is just a hypothesis, but my guess is that when Hannah eventually did give birth to Samuel, 
Oh my goodness, it, it would have been very hard not to idolize Samuel, not to make Samuel the, the center of our life. It would have been very hard. But you know what, two things about that. Number one, that's not fair to Samuel. <laughs> he cannot fulfill, if a mom is placing her hopes, dreams, expectations on that kid, that's not fair to the kid. Number two, at a certain point, Samuel's gonna disappoint Hannah throughout his life. And she's gonna be crushed by those heavy expectations. Right? There is only one child one savior, one person that we can derive a sense of identity, value, and worth, one child who can give us a future, and that is none other than Jesus himself. And the story behind 1 Samuel at the end of the day and every Old Testament story is fundamentally about another person, and that is Jesus. So this is 1 Samuel, grand introduction. And it begins with uh, the pain and the prayers of a godly mother, a resilient mother named Hannah. So we'll see you next week for another, uh, another sermon uh, as we kick off this series. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for uh, introducing us to uh, such a resilient, remarkable, relatable woman in Hannah. Thank you that with her pain and her tears, there was a steadfastness about her. In the midst of the trauma, she was getting left and right. There was a, 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 a long obedience in the same direction, not the wrong direction. And it is our prayer that as we all have this hole in our hearts, that we continually chase after your heart, not other things, to fill that vacuum that is within us. In your name I pray, amen.